with you guys tonight. I've been looking forward to this. Uh, for those that weren't here for the chapel message, which I had a blast getting to give, uh, I guess that was last Tuesday, I, uh, and our church back in Port Moresby, one of my primary roles is pastor for the children. So I get to work a lot with the children in their various ministries and also a number of the youth as well. But the children have a hard time with my name. And I mentioned this in, in, uh, in the chapel message, but a lot of the kids and even some of the adults call me Tyra or Tina or I've been on the phone with a customer service agent before in PNG and they're like, so Tiffany. And I'm like, no, 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 no. My name's not Tiffany. Well, Tiffany, we can't help you. I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm fine. Tiffany's cool, whatever. You know, that works. So I would tell my kids, I just tell everyone, you know, just call me Pastor T. Because even in America, my, one of my bosses that I worked for for many years would call me Travis all the time. So I've just kind of given up on Tyler. So if you want to call me T, Ty, or Pastor T, that's cool with me. So tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'm, again, very pumped to be with you guys tonight. And as a way of just thankfulness, I want to share with you all uh, so many things that, that we have been grateful for that you guys have shown towards us in love. Uh, I know Pastor, Pastor Lloyd mentioned Josh. I don't know if he's in here tonight or if he's out, but Josh giving us his car, and then he just keeps letting us hold on to that. And this morning I texted him and said, you know, Josh, you've been working with these dogs in Logan, and so we can't hardly figure our way through Brisbane without hitting the toll road. Can I please give you some money for the tolls, you know? At the end of this thing, he said, nope, not happening. I'm just like, okay, I have a feeling that's pretty expensive. So wherever Josh is at, if he's here, thank you, and to your wife. Also, just to many of you that behind the scenes, I don't know who you are, but you're a help to us being able to stay here and just minister to our family. Again, from the bottom of my family's heart to you guys, thank you so much. Tonight, we'll be in Luke chapter 7, as I said. We're going to be looking at what it is to have great faith. I love this portion of scripture because we've got two very interesting characters that are brought into this text, this true story that took place a couple thousand years ago in Luke chapter 7. It takes place in the city of Capernaum. And in this city, we begin our story in, in verse number 2. And a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him, unto this centurion, was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. Let's hold right there and pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we give to you this text. Lord, it is your word. It is holy. It was without error. God, the power of this message is going to lie in this word and in your Holy Spirit, not in me. So God, would you just use me as a vessel for your glory? Would you take your word and transform the way we think about you? Would you grow us in our understanding of who you are, God? Help us to leave here actually changed for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So here we have these interesting characters brought forth right from verse chapter 2. It says there was a certain centurion's servant. The first one I want to look at in this unfolding drama that we're going to see here is the centurion. You might say, well, why is this unique? Because a centurion is a, is a Gentile Roman, not a normal character for, you know, what we think about in this Jewish culture. But we got this Gentile Roman military leader. Generally, centurions were the best of the best from the rank and file. These guys were generally over 100 soldiers, give or take some. They weren't always just over 100 soldiers, but history tells us that they, that's generally what they were in charge of. And these men were the poster boys of Roman power and occupation over the land. 
that alone would make them automatically unpopular with the surrounding Jewish environment. You're just not generally going to be friends with the folks that are your occupying force. And that's who is first introduced to us in the story is the centurion. Another interesting character in our story is the slave. Look at this back in verse number two. A certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. Matthew tells us that this slave, this servant, was grievously tormented. I think if, if you could bring him into modern day and a doctor set this servant down and said, hey, on a scale of one to ten, medically, what's your pain like? I think our servant would say, 11. Grievously tormented. That just doesn't give me uh, feelings of peace and tranquility. It gives me feelings of suffering. That's what it conveys to me. So you've got this servant who's grievously ill, but it's not his grievous illness that is unique. In the text, it says the servant was dear unto the centurion. Yes, he's ready to die. He's at death's doorstep. His time is ticking away on this earth, but he was dear to the Roman centurion that he belonged to. Understand that this is not normal for the Roman culture that this servant is in. This is not at all normal for a slave to be dear to a Roman master, culturally speaking. And this is, this is from guys that have studied history, historians in other words. These are from historians. And this is what they say, in this time, in this culture, in this context, a slave was lewd as nothing more than a living tool. Just a living tool, an inanimate object, in other words. Cato, who the Roman, the Roman culture would have listened to for advice and looked to for their culture and the way they dealt with slaves, said this. His advice was to a man taking over a farm for the new owner to throw away everything that has passed its work. And old slaves, too, must be thrown out on the heap of scrap to starve. When a slave is ill... It is sheer extravagance, according to Cato, to issue him with normal rations. The old and sick slave is only a broken and inefficient tool. Wow, and he's supposed to be smart? <laughs> Fail. Varro, another Roman scholar named Varro, scholar, said, said this, slaves should be considered just instruments of farming. He said you can divide instruments of farming into three groups or garden tools into three different groups, the articulate, the inarticulate, and the mute. The articulate would be your slaves. The inarticulate would be your cattle. And the mute would be your actual hand tool, like your spade. Does that sound like wisdom to anybody in here? Not to me. That's the culture that we're talking about. That is, this is the ideas, the philosophies that the Roman society had adopted in regards to slaves. So I think it's very unique that this Roman centurion loved this slave. One uh, Bible scholar said at this time, roughly one-third of the Roman Empire was in slavery. If you look up the size of the Roman Empire during this time, it would have been around 180 million people. That means 60 million, roughly, are viewed as nothing more than garden tools. Many of those would have been Christians, followers of Jesus, history tells us. This is a rough time to be a slave. Any time is a rough time to be a slave, friends. But this centurion viewed his servant as being dear unto him. Again, that's very culturally strange. But our story continues to build as we go on here. Verse number four. Actually, we'll start in verse number three again. And when he heard of Jesus, the Syrian Tyrian hears of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that they would come, that he, Jesus, would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. Verse number three brings something out very interesting, that this man, the centurion, was able to send Jewish elders 
That is noteworthy for a number of reasons. The biggest being, how in the world was this Jewish centurion friends with these Jewish elders? This is, we're starting to see a testimony of this man's character. He loved the slave. He got along with Jewish elders in his community. Hmm, not normal at all. But these Jewish elders had great respect. And look what they say to Jesus when they find him in verse number four. And when they came to Jesus, the elders, they besought him instantly, immediately, saying that he, the centurion, was worthy for whom Jesus should do this. Hey, Jesus, please, whatever you're doing, stop, stop, stop. we got to get to you because we have a man. He's a Roman centurion, and he's got a servant who needs to be healed, and you need to help him because this guy's worthy of your help. That's, that's unusual, to say the least, in this time, that these Jewish guys with such urgency would approach Jesus. To me, my mind to kind of crawl into the text, because I like to put the text on it and try to get into the story and live it and, and experience it as it's written. I have to put into my mind, okay, what illustration, what have I experienced that would give me the sense of urgency like these Jewish elders would have had? And the only thing that would come to my mind is I was literally asking God, God, please help bring something to mind to bring this urgency and the situation clearly out. And what came to my mind is, when uh, I was in the States, my wife and I had just been to church. We went out to eat with my parents at a Mexican restaurant. I do love Mexican. And we're sitting there at this Mexican restaurant. Everything's normal. I'm eating my tacos. And then suddenly, out of nowhere, the, the peace is just shattered by this girl behind us screaming for somebody to help her mom. Or mom, sorry. And I get up, and my brother-in-law was at the table with me. He gets up, and we turn around, and this lady is having a grand mal seizure right in the, in, the, in the seats next to us. So we get out, and I'm no hero, okay? I'm just classifying that right now. I'm no hero, but my brother-in-law get out, and this lady is, is just, her body is out of control. The poor woman was experiencing a horrible thing, that grandma's seizure, and she was in danger. And we had a, a waitress that was smart enough to come along. The waitress was awesome. She just took everything on the table, went whoosh, and cleared the table of everything, threw the table out of the way, and my brother-in-law and I got there, and we helped to kind of get her stabilized and, and protect her from hurting herself on the bench that she was on, just lay her down. And immediately I call emergency services. And I, I remember calling and, and talking to a lady, and I said, ma'am, this is where we're at. Can you please send help right away? This lady is under some kind of attack. We don't know if she's even been able to breathe right now. Oh, yes, help is on the way right away. I'm like, 10 minutes go by. Nothing. We don't even hear sirens. I'm going, okay, there is a massive hospital less than a mile or, you know, kilometer and a half down the road. Why is no one here? So I call back, ma'am, we need someone to get here. This lady is in dire need of help, and, and we do not know what to do to help her right now. Oh, don't worry about it. Help is on the way. She said, help's going to be there in 10 minutes. 10 minutes go by. I call back again. I'm like, ma'am, it's been actually more than 10 minutes. Is somebody coming to help this lady? It's been 20 minutes since I made this call. And there's a hospital down the road. What's going on? And she goes, oh, no, don't worry about it, sir. Everything's under control. There is a doctor on the scene right helping her right now. I'm going, there's a doctor here? <laughs> I look around. There's one guy with me who had kind of come out of the blue and started helping us stabilize this lady. And I said, sir, are you a doctor? No. I looked at my brother-in-law. I was like, bro, you're not a doctor. I looked at myself. Not a doctor. I said, ma'am, I'm sorry. I'm one of three guys here, and none of us are doctors. We're just a bunch of stooges trying to help this lady out. Would you please send somebody to help? She said, well, but somebody has told me that there's a doctor there. I said, ma'am, please. I don't know who told you this lie. 
I don't know why you believed it, but send someone to help. I remember my brother-in-law and this gentleman and I, we were just flooded with a sense of urgency, like, you are the one that can help us. Would you please send help? And for some reason, this emergency service person had believed, sight unseen, that we were doctors, or one of us was a doctor, completely unverified. And I remember thinking, please, please, there is urgency here. Guys, help did eventually come. But I can relate to these guys, these elders, as they are going and pleading for help. But praise God, they actually went to a man who had supreme authority over the universe and beyond for help. They didn't go for Dr. Nickel, thank God. They went to the right person. And we look on here. And they said, when they came to Jesus, beseeching him, they tell him that the centurion was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Isn't that interesting? They give two reasons why Jesus, in this, this charge of urgency, why he should help the centurion. Reason number one, he loves our people. What a testimony to the centurion. He loves our people. He cherishes our Jewish people. That is not normal. And that's what these guys are getting across. I'm, as I read and as I study this text, I am falling in love with who this centurion is. I can't wait to meet him one day. Because this man was a leader. He was a true leader. He didn't just come in and, and take over Capernaum. He actually cared for those around him. So much so that when the people that he was over and the people in his community, when they hurt, he hurt. And when he hurt, they hurt. That's a testimony of a true leader right there, isn't it? I could guarantee you when you hurt, your pastor hurts. I know when we've been hurting, he's been hurting. And now I feel connected to your church, and when I find out that somebody here is hurting, my family's going to hurt because we love you all. And I know you guys are hurting with us, and I, I'm blessed by that, and I love that this centurion is such an example of true leadership and really manhood and what God desires for us. Reason number two they gave, he built this a synagogue. Boom. <laughs> the guy straight up built a, a church for the Jewish people. Built them a synagogue. Hey, Jesus, this guy built us a synagogue. Not a cheap thing to do. That is a thing that would involve self-sacrifice, and yet this centurion did that, and they're saying, Jesus, because of this, would you please do this? I just love this testimony of the centurion, but his testimony is even increased further as we go deeper into the text. Look on, look on as we go here. Then Jesus went with them, verse six. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, he sent friends, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou should enter under my roof. I'm not worthy that you should even come under my roof, Jesus. There is, a, there is another character trait that's beginning to come out of this centurion in this text. Did you catch what just happened here? He's like, God, I am not fit for you to come into my house. I believe with all my heart that centurion knew that ritualistically Jesus would have been ceremonially unclean the instant he would have walked into that centurion's house because that centurion was a Gentile. And he would have received, in PNG terms, he would have received all kinds of heavies 
from the religious leaders surrounding the area if he had gone into that centurion's house. And that centurion is not just thinking about his needs, he's thinking about Jesus. And he's saying, Jesus, I'm not even worthy, I'm not even fit that you should come into my home. This is not a puffed up man, is it? I would imagine there were some centurions of the age that would have been like, yeah, you'll come in here and you'll do exactly what I say because I'm a centurion, so hop to it, buddy. But that's not this guy. That's not this one. Notice also, notice this, back in verse 6, he says, Lord, trouble not thyself. Lord. It's a pretty important word there, isn't it? He doesn't just call him Jesus. He calls him Lord. He doesn't just call him teacher. Lord is what he calls him. I love that. That Lord word that Lord there is from the word kurios, meaning master, God, supreme in authority. It's no accident that this Roman calls Jesus through messengers Lord. What a testimony. Go on to verse 7. Wherefore, neither thought I, thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. Hey, I don't even think I'm worthy to come into your presence, to come to you personally. I don't even feel like I'm the right guy for that. Do you get what's happening here? This man is poor in spirit. He's not cast down, but he is poor in spirit. He's humble. It is no accident either that just before this passage, you have the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. This is a man that is living out the Sermon on the Mount. He is living it out. And then we go on in the text. He says, But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. Jesus, you don't even need to come into my house. I don't even need to come to you personally. I'm not even worthy to come to you personally. You don't need to do any kind of waving of the arms. I mentioned in, in chapel, sometimes we tend in our modern society to associate with superheroes. And I always think, you know, the illustrations that are out there of, you know, bless God, heal this man. You know, we have a lot of that in Oklahoma. We've got a big school that has a lot of, you know, they claim to do a lot of healings, and it's always this theatrical thing. It's always fake and phony. Jesus does not need to do that. He doesn't need the show. He doesn't need a Las Vegas show to show that he is God. This centurion understood that, friends. He says, God, all you got to do is speak, Lord, and it will sort itself out. That's a testimony to this man's faith. What a testimony. This guy had rock-solid faith. And why rock solid? Because his faith was founded on the authority of God. You see, our faith is only as good as the authority it rests upon. It's only as good as the authority it rests upon. I remember talking to one of my former flight clients, a guy that I was training to be a pilot. He was already a helicopter pilot. And before this, he retired from the military. He'd been in the 160th, which is an American squadron that only flies very high-level special forces. Uh, if you guys know Phil Perry... And uh, that he was involved with the SAS, pretty high up in the SAS. Uh, Phil Perry was one of the main, his group was one of the main groups that flew with the 160th when he was overseas. These guys, the 160th flies the best of the best. They fly the Delta Force, Australian Special Forces, German Special Forces, whoever they're in alliance with. If you're the end of the spirit, that's who is flying you around. That's who this guy, my student, used to fly with. Very sharp individual. 
And I remember witnessing to him one day after we did a flight. We were sitting down at the restaurant, grabbing a burger together, going over our ground school, just talking about the lesson plans and so forth. And I got to get into the gospel with this guy. And I said, Kevin, I said, what do you place your faith in for salvation? He said, well, I grew up in this family with this religious background and so forth and so forth, so I know I'm good. I was this and this at this age, so I know I'm overall. And I said, wait a minute, Kevin. Wait a minute. Your faith, is it built on the truth that's in the Bible? Because can I show you some verses? And I was able to walk through some scripture with him and show him that his faith was not in the authority of anything written by the Lord, but in was, his faith was in what man had placed for him to believe in. And friends, if your authority is just man, it's going to fall apart. If your faith is in the authority of just men, it will crumble. But this centurion's faith was not. This centurion's faith was not. And I, I go back to my flight student. I brought to him and I said, you know, every time we do an instrument approach in, in weather, when we fly in weather, you might be flying where you can't see anything around you, right? Nothing except for just your wings. And you've got to take a specific Approach. We call it approach plate. It's a document that shows an exact path with exact radio frequencies, with exact things to set your dials to in your airplane. And you got to follow that right down. You can literally follow that to 50 feet off the ground at 130 miles per hour and be exactly where you need to be to touch down without any problems. And I said, Kevin, if you're placing your faith in men, it's going to fall flat. Just like you would never just pull out whatever approach plate you want to fly in instrument conditions and land on a runway. Friends, I truly believe this centurion understood that Jesus was Lord God Almighty. And his faith was in the proper authority, in the approach plate that God has given us, his word. You can trust this book all the way to death and into heaven. This is the right book. You can base everything on this word. This centurion understood that his faith needed to be in the Lord and Jesus it was rock-solid faith. For instance, Roman centurions, going back to more context on them, they were notorious for leading from the front of the pack. This is not a, a second-rate individual. This guy was chosen as a centurion because he had been faithful in battle many times. He had been courageous. He had proven himself. That's the only way, historically speaking, that men became centurions. So this guy was no laughing matter. He was a soldier's soldier. And when he says what he says next to Jesus, it means something because it comes from a guy that was willing and improved himself, highly disciplined and willing to lay down his life at the head of the pack going into battle. And look what he says next in verse number eight. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth. And to one, go, and another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. You just see, this centurion understood leadership and true authority. And he was equating that to God. He's saying, Lord Jesus, I know that you have authority. And I understand it. And all you have to do is say the word. And it's done, period. And I believe this centurion came from the perspective that, Jesus, if you are who everyone has been saying you are, and if you are who you have been saying you are, then I Trust your authority. For I also, he says, I'm a man sent under authority. He understood that he was under authority just like the centurion understood that his servant was under the supernatural authority of God, of Jesus. Now here's where it's getting really good. 
Because this centurion has just said something that made Jesus marvel. Look back then. When Jesus heard these words in verse number 9, he marveled at him. And turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. That's something for Jesus to say, isn't it? He marveled. Jesus, creator, the sustainer of the universe, marveled at this man's faith. The only other time in Scripture that we have a record of Jesus marveling at somebody's faith or at some group of people's faith is a while back in Luke, or Mark, excuse me, where he marvels at the lack of faith of his hometown of Nazareth. That's the other time. It's in, towards a lack of faith that he marveled. And here we have just the opposite. We have a marveling at faith. So Jesus marveled at the lack of faith of Nazareth because they're going, hey, wait a minute, who do you think you are? You're just Jesus. You were born to like poor people. You had regular brothers and sisters that acted up. And you think you're going to come in here and tell us that you're the Messiah, the Son of God? Get lost. He marveled at their unbelief. And then further, back, further on in Scripture, we have Jesus come to Capernaum. And when he comes to Capernaum the first time before this, if you recall what happens, Jesus does a, a multitude of healings in one evening. He does a multitude of healings. He casts out demons. He heals the sick. He's healed Peter's mother-in-law. He's done some amazing things. And the next day, he rises up early while it's yet dark, and he goes out and prays. And the people from Capernaum come to him and say, Jesus, would you please stick around here? You know why? I think because they wanted him to open up a miracle clinic. Hey, Jesus, you're a miracle worker. Can you just stay here and just meet our physical needs? And Jesus tells him, no, I must be about the kingdom of God. I must preach the kingdom of heaven. But this centurion understands that Jesus is about the kingdom of heaven. He understands, hey, Jesus, you don't need to come and, and touch my servant. You don't need to do anything grandeur. You can just say the word. Perhaps this centurion even heard of what happened just before this in, in Capernaum when Jesus was teaching in the house. And you remember the three guys, I believe it was, that dropped that, that friend that was sick with the palsy down to the roof. And Jesus says to this guy, rise up and walk. Your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees in that house go berserk. They're like, that's blasphemy. Maybe the centurion heard this story. Maybe he was even there and watched this happen. And, but the Pharisees at that time called Jesus out for blasphemy. And Jesus says, wait a minute. I did the lesser miracle of making this man rise up and walk to prove that I have power to forgive his sins. And this centurion, I believe, understands that, which is why he calls him Lord. And why he says, I'm not even worthy of him to come to my house. You don't even need to come to my house. I don't even have to come to you personally. You just say the word. He has faith in this Jesus' authority, in his power over the universe and sickness. Go to Matthew chapter 8. We're going to look at a parallel account of this story. A few verses from Matthew chapter 8. I love looking at the parallel accounts and 
Anytime I'm studying for a passage, especially in the Gospels, I try to read multiple, multiple times all the different records of the event to, and then try to map it out chronologically so I can figure out what exactly happened. And this, this just brings to light the scripture of Luke chapter 7. But in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, Jesus is talking in this very scene and he says something. And remember, Matthew's written to a Jewish context. Luke is written to a Gentile uh, audience primarily. But here in Matthew, we're going to see it from the perspective of, of written to Jews. And he says, I say unto you that many shall come from east and west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why would he say this? after dealing and hearing the centurion's faith. Why? Because he's trying to help the Jews there understand something. Hey, you guys might come from the right bloodline. You might come from the right grandparents and great, 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 great grandparents all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But friends, he's telling them, listen, if you've not put your faith in me and trusted me as the only one that has authority to forgive you of your sins, then you are lost. And he says, many are going to come from the east and from the west. There's going to be Gentiles all over in heaven. I don't know if there's any Jews in here, but I would imagine that the vast majority of us in here are Gentiles tonight. So this should be pretty exciting for us, huh? I mean, I'm, my hope is resting in this, that I can come from the east or the west in faith in Jesus as Lord. And he says to these guys, you might be a part of the kingdom. In other words, the bloodline of Abraham. But that doesn't make you my child without faith. Faith like this centurion has. That's why he says this. He is marveling at the centurion's faith, how great it is. We look on here. He says, And Jesus said unto them, unto the centurion, Go thy way. And as thou hast believed, so it be done unto thee. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. This whole story should give us so much hope as Gentiles. It is never bad for us as believers to meditate upon the gospel and upon who Jesus is as Lord. Because he's, he's not just Jesus. He is Lord God Almighty. Everything is under him. He is above all things. By him all things consist. So important that we grasp this the centurion got a hold of it. And Jesus uses it to tell these Jewish people that are around, listen, you need to get a hold of what this guy has. And I submit to you guys tonight, I'd be probably remiss to think that everyone in here has put their faith in Christ, has realized that Jesus is the only one that has authority as Lord to forgive you of your sins, to pay for your sins on the cross. If you're here tonight and you have not put your faith in Christ, would you glean from this passage and realize that you might have done all the right ritualistic things. You might have gone to all the right services. You might even have be wearing exactly the right clothes, have done all the right things at the right date. Your parents have baptized you, whatever it might be, I don't know. But listen, friends, if that's you and you think that's going to pay for your sin, it will not. That's what Jesus is warning these Jews about. Don't get caught up in the same thing. Believer, if you're here tonight, Take joy in the fact that as Gentiles, we can be a part of the family of God, the kingdom of heaven, because of Jesus' payment for our sins on the cross through his death, burial, and resurrection. What a privilege that we do not deserve but by the grace of God.
it is never bad to meditate on who Jesus is as Lord and strengthen our faith in him as Lord. Perhaps you're here tonight and, and you've been seeking Jesus as the one to fix your physical problems. Hey, Jesus, would you just do this miracle for me? I'll love you more if you just do this for me. No, don't, don't be that way. Guys, I know what that feels like. I've just come from a, being violated physically in our home. And I know what it means to be like, Lord, why would you let this happen? But Jesus didn't come to save us from our physical problems. He came to save us from our sin. We need to remind ourselves of that and focus, zero in on the gospel, dial in on it every single day. We need to remind ourselves that he is truly Lord over all things, including our life. If we've put our faith in him, it is our reasonable service to yield ourselves as living sacrifices unto him. I try to start every day praying something very simple. It was given to me by a pastor that I heard on the radio. He says every day he wakes up. First thing he prays before he even gets out of bed, before he even gets up is, Lord, glorify yourself today at my expense. Friends, a few weeks ago, that prayer took on new meaning for my family. And now when we pray it, there's a little bit of trembling like, Lord, glorify yourself at my expense. <laughs> kind of? Just kidding. No, no. But no, it's so serious though. Truly, God, would you glorify yourself at our expense? Would you lift yourself up at our expense? Because you are Lord. Have we accepted that? Have you accepted that? Have you reminded yourself of that? Would we be like this centurion and would we understand and remind ourselves that he is Lord and to be poor in spirit? Blessed are the poor in spirit. He understood the authority of God. I hope that's you today. I hope you desire that more today than you did when you came in. I know it's a struggle for me. Let's pray together that we would strive for that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the example that you gave us in Scripture of this centurion and his servant. God, you're able to heal this, this servant, not because it was just some neat miracle to do, because that servant is now dead. But Lord, his spirit is alive somewhere. I would assume he's put his faith in Christ, but Lord, we don't know on this side of eternity, but God, one way or another, we know that you healed on this earth to show that you have power over the greater sickness, which is sin. Lord, would you strengthen us in our understanding of that? Lord, we can never on this earth truly plumb the depths of that great truth. Would you help us, though, to dig and dig and dig into that truth that you, the just, died for us, the unjust, that you were made sin for us, you knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in your son, Jesus. Would you help us and this church, Good Shepherd Baptist, the people of it, to dig into that truth every day and remind us to call you Lord every day and mean it and serve you wholeheartedly, yielded completely unto you through your spirit. God, we give the rest of this hour to you for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Paul, turn over.